you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 47 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, good to see you as always. And you will recall that last week in studio we had a wonderful interview with Michael O'Flaherty, head of the European Union's Fundamental Rights Agency, who talked about his fascinating work in the area of human rights and international relations. What wonderful work that man does. Yeah, extraordinary. And and his experience of working in former Yugoslavia during the conflict was, was just really interesting. And for such a high-profile mm. Irish person operating internationally, he's mm. not as well known as you'd expect him to be. Absolutely, yeah. Well, hopefully we've changed that a little bit. Okay, Mark. So, as you know, we have previously focused on planning and development law on this podcast. Uh, And today we're going to focus in and zero in on a very important uh, document called the Kenny Report, uh, which was produced under the chairmanship of former Supreme Court Judge John Kenny. It was published in 1973 uh, and it sought to regulate the price of building land in the public interest. Uh, Does this have a contemporary feel? I wonder. Well, we are delighted today. We're going to be joined by Tim Ryan, who is a legendary political correspondent and has done a load of other things. And he has written a book on this called The Kenny Report, Housing a Missed Opportunity, The Tangled Story of the Kenny Report. I know you've read the book and you were very impressed by it. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, the Kenny Report is so mythical. And as as Tim himself said, there have been letters to the Irish Times for for many, many years saying why has the Kenny Report uh, recommendations never been implemented? And now we know. But bizarrely, it seems very hard to get your hands on this. Yep. There are only a few copies hidden away in dusty corners somewhere. I, I'd say somewhere in the law library there somewhere will be a the copy law library. of the... Somebody uh, can the, find the, it for us. Okay, well, first we're going to go to some cases that you've identified from the Decisis website. Our first case was brought by a receiver seeking possession of property subject to a mortgage. The borrowers sought discovery of documentation in the usual way, but the receiver did not want to disclose a mortgage sale deed, didn't want to give that away at all, whereby the original mortgage had been sold by the original lender to another financial institution. This is the case of Ryan versus Purcell, a high court decision of Mr. Justice Connor Dignam. Yeah. So, so yeah, as you said, this is a claim for possession by a receiver um, but the, I suppose the interesting thing about this, which was basically a discovery application, is that the receiver had been appointed not by the original mortgagee, but by the financial institution that bought the mortgage from the original mortgagee. And so when the defendants were seeking to defend this claim for possession, they sought discovery in the usual way. But one of the things they weren't given was the mortgage sale deed between the original mortgagee and the other financial institution. And so they brought a, an application for further and better discovery of that document. And obviously the receiver said, they don't need this, you know, they, they, we've established ownership. But the issue here was that there were certain provisions of other documents that referred back to the mortgage sale deed. And what Mr. Justice Dignam said was, you can't understand these other documents unless you have a copy of the mortgage sale deed. So for that reason, he granted them discovery. Okay, but when I looked at this first, I mean, I thought, obviously they're going to get the mortgage sale deed. Mm-hmm. But you're saying that there were arguments that the receiver could make which would sort of, you know, an, a legitimate objection to giving this? Yeah, I think that once that once they were able to show that they were the registered mortgagee, they said that was all they needed to, to prove in order to get an order for possession. It's just that there were other documents that okay. referred back very, to this mortgage. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay, very good, very good. Okay, let's move on to case number two. 
And this is a court of appeal decision. The Minister for Transport granted a contract for the Coast Guard Air, Sea and Rescue Services and, you know, to provide that service, I presume. However, an unsuccessful tenderer sought to challenge the contract by judicial review. This gave rise to an automatic suspension of the contract and the state was very worried, we're not going to have cover, we're not going yeah. to have air and sea rescue facilities as a result of this. Yeah. So this is ultimately it's a public procurement case. So the contract for air sea rescue services was coming up for renewal in 2025. The Minister of Transport granted a new contract and as very often happens, an unsuccessful bidder uh, wanted to challenge it, they brought judicial review, but that meant that the contract was automatically suspended. Now, the concern from the state's point of view was that in order to set up this kind of helicopter service, it doesn't. It, there's, a, there's a big lead in, in time. And if the, if it was the suspension carried on for any length of time, that would mean that there was literally nobody to carry out air sea rescue. So the application before the court was to lift the automatic suspension, effectively to allow the contract to be granted. And what the court effectively said was, well, look, that may mean that the unsuccessful bidder doesn't later have a hope of succeeding, but they still have a remedy in damages against the state. But at least the state can be sure that there will be a helicopter service in place for air sea rescues. Okay, and I should have said, this is a court of appeal decision. This was CHC, Ireland, DAC, against the Minister for Transport. And it was a decision of the Court of Appeal given by Ms. Justice Caroline Costello. And affirming the decision of the High Court. Court, Absolutely. And finally, to a competition law case involving an application for security for costs. The proceedings concerned a company operating a private hospital and the VHI. They were the two parties. It had already been the subject of a number of judgments concerning the expert economist who was retained by the plaintiff. Another expert evidence case, Mark. How do these keep creeping in all the time? Having succeeded in the Supreme Court, the defendant then sought security for costs against the applicant company. So this was the case of Sweeney versus the VHI and it's the decision of Mr Justice Max Barrett in the High Court. Yeah, so this case has already been in the High Court, the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court in relation to this expert evidence issue where they had the applicant, the plaintiff, had had retained Moore McDowell who had a previous connection with the VHI and ultimately the Supreme Court said that Moore McDowell could not act as the expert witness for the plaintiff. So the case having gone all of that way in May of this year, May 2023, the state wrote to the plaintiff company, which was running a private hospital, and said, we want you to provide security for costs. Because if you're a limited company, obviously there is a, a real danger that the defendants won't have their costs covered. It's very unusual for an application for security for costs to be entertained so many years after the case was first issued. And so that was, as far as I could see, the main uh, defence of the, the plaintiff okay. in the case. And saying the sums of money the, in this were huge. Yeah, 1.8 million. Well, that's a curious thing about this because it seems that the plaintiff never actually challenged the, the sum of money that VHI said it would cost them to defend these proceedings. I mean, it does seem extraordinary. This is a competition law case. Yes. And what they're saying is the VHI, in refusing to provide cover to this private hospital, is abusing its dominant position. But the VHI has said that it would cost nearly 1.8 million to defend these proceedings, which is a staggering amount of money. I mean, obviously, a, a barrister of your calibre, yes. uh, you know, is, yeah, it doesn't... I was going to say, nice work if you can get exactly, it. Exactly, yeah. But um, but anyway, um, it, it appears that Mr Justice Barrett accepted that sum uh, on its face because the plaintiff hadn't challenged the, the, the sum of money uh, assessed by the VHI okay. and, and granted the order. Okay, superb, Mark. Really well explained. Uh, thank you for those. And we're back shortly with Tim Ryan. Silence in the Fifth Court. 
So we are delighted to be joined in the studio today by Tim Ryan, who is going to talk to us about the Kenny Report. But Tim Ryan has a very interesting background. He worked as a journalist for years in the Cork Examiner, as it then was, and then the Irish Press. And after the Irish Press folded in 1995, he went into public consultancy. He has also written a number of books, one on the Balanced Spittle Moving Statue, three biographies of note, one of P.J. Mara, one of, on Dick Spring and one on Albert Reynolds. And he has also written uh, two editions of Neelan's Guide, which I have to mention a conflict of interest where I, I w worked with him on the second one of those uh, in the 2020 election. Uh, Neelan's Guide is the, uh, the go-to place for political uh, uh, aficionados in the country. But he has now set up his own publishing company, Grand Canal Media. And I think this is the first book published uh, which is called Housing, A Missed Opportunity, The Tangled Story of the Kenny Report. So, Tim, thanks very much for joining us on The Fifth Court. Delighted to be here. So maybe we just start by uh, just asking you a little bit about your background in journalism before moving on to The Kenny Report. I mean, you've uh, worked with everybody, haven't you? Yeah, well, I, I suppose I started out life, um, I did a, a degree many years ago in UCC in English and Latin and uh, taught, taught as a secondary school teacher for um, three or four years before moving into journalism. And I was a freelance, like a lot of people do, started out in Tipperary for the local papers and doing bits and pieces for the national papers. And uh, I think it was uh, 1984, I worked for six months in the office of uh, T.J. Maher, who's then the well-known MEP in Munster. And uh, after that finished, I was lucky enough to get a job in the then Cork Examiner, where I was for two or three years. And that is an esteemed publication that another person present yes. once worked for. Uh, we, we have a special handshake, don't we, Tim? Because we were there. We were there, man. You know? Was it the Irish Examiner by the time well, you joined uh, no, us? No, I joined us when it was the Cork Examiner and I was there when it became the Examiner and then the Irish Examiner. So there was kind of a, a transition period of about six months, you know. But tell us, take us back to um, Academy Street all those years ago in Cork. Legendary place, full of characters and wonderful journalists. Oh, yeah, wonderful. It was a great training ground and a very nice place to work. And in many ways, I often regretted uh, leaving it because there was a great camaraderie. And I made some great friends there, like uh, T.P. O'Mahony, who's still Who became writing. a barrister. Well, he um, certainly did, did a law did degree, a law right? degree, yeah. And uh, Peter Tusky, you might remember, yes, who went to Gorty later, went, went abroad. Tommy Barker was property editor there, and he became property editor, and, I think and he's is still, still there. there. Yes, one of the people that that I would still know if I walked into the newsroom in in the Examiner. Um, very odd, most of them retired now, and of course, when I joined it in 1985, that was a very wet summer, and uh, one day I remember Donald Musgrave, who was the news editor on the um, Examiner, asked me to go down to Balance Spittle. There were some reports about moving statues. Little did I know I'd spend the next three months. Based camped, down, out. camped out down in Bell Spittle <laughs> reporting on. And Tim, on the movie. did you see any statues moving? No, I didn't. And from I never saw anything moving. I couldn't believe how uh, what I used to consider were normally sane people coming up to me, including a member of Garda Sergeant local. Uh, couldn't believe how I couldn't see this moving one night. I mean, uh, actually, Tim, we have to explain this in more detail for some of our newer listeners, our younger listeners who won't know about this. 1985, Bell Spittle. Crowds came from all over Ireland on a regular basis to see a statue of the Virgin Mary up on a hill, and people claimed it, it was moving. Yeah, um, a mother and I think a friend and two two girls were out walking one night, and they had claimed they saw it moving, and they told people, and loads and loads of people gathered, and it just expanded. It was un unbelievable. I mean, I, I remember counting ten and fifteen buses down from Dublin alone some nights. Um, just to leave O'Connell Street and come down. Hard to believe it in 2023. 
But it, it did happen in 1980. But there was a knock-on effect throughout the country, wasn't there? There was oh, statues there was. moving statues all over the country there. that summer, yes. Various different yeah, countries. That's why um, there was a, a psychologist in UCC, called, a Polish man called uh, Dr. Jurek Kierakowski, and I met him somewhere talking about it, and he'd written a piece, I think, for the examiner, and we decided there's a book in this, I'll just relate the facts, and you'll try and explain what's behind it. And, I mean, he did, I mean... And it was hard to explain what's behind it, except that if, <laughs> on a wet night, if you keep if you keep staring at lights on behind a statue, eventually you'll think they're shaking or moving. If you don't, if you keep staring long enough, but some people seem to see all sorts of things. I could never see anything, but uh, it took off, and the chip vans did very well, and they moved in, and the <laughs> coffee shops, and the absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, okay, so you left the Examiner and you moved to Burkey, the Irish Press. Yeah, I went to the celebrated uh, Irish press, which sadly is no longer with us yeah, since right. 1995. But tell us about your time in Berkeley. Yeah, I, I started off there as, um, I got a job as, I come from a farming background in West Tipperary, so I've been, always had an interest in farming. So I got a job there as agricultural editor in, in 1987. And I did that for a couple of years. Again, joined a newsroom of wonderful people, great people that, that were there. And T.P. O'Mahony was actually still working with the Irish press that time as religious affairs correspondent and went back to the examiner. But I was sitting across in the room, my, across the desk from me was the well-known financial writer, uh, Colm Rappel. Yes. Who I established a good relationship with him. Colm was very well-known in producing the budget, the tax book, every year. And Tim Pat Coogan was Tim editor. Pat was editor at the time. Yes. Um, still with us, thank God. And what about and, the Fianna Fáil slant in Burkey? I mean, we know it was set up by it, De Valera all those years ago. Yeah, Charlie it, Hawhey was in power in those days. Yeah. You know, so what about all of that? It was there, but very much in the background. I mean, the the guy who in politics, you know, in, in the old days, they would just have reprinted what De Valera said word for word, more or less. The guy who probably broke the mould on the political reporting there was a guy called Michael Mills, who was uh, yeah. the political editor. Later ombudsman. Later yeah, on, became ever, the first ever yeah, first ombudsman. Ever, yeah. The only reason he took the job, I think, I remember him telling me himself, was he told the management, Mr. De Valera at the time, that Vivian De Valera at the time, that the only way he would take the job was if he was free to report as he saw it. And mm. he did. And he was quite critical of Fianna Fáil and some of his writing. So he was a very straight down commentator. And of course, um, with some other political journalists, then they had the job afterwards. Um, Sean O'Rourke was there for a while. Yes, Emily O'Reilly. So they were nonpartisan. They just were professional political journalists. So I think, you know, the Irish press lost the, um, the Fianna Fáil tag at that stage. And certainly when I worked in Dunster House, you were free to report. And I have to say, nobody ever asked me to uh, take, pull a story or to write it in a certain way. You were you were very free to do what you, as, as were all the journalists in the Irish press. And the Sunday press, of course, we had great political reporters and editors there, like Stephen Collins was yes. there. So Who was, was editor, Michael Keane in those Michael days? Michael Keane yeah. was editor, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Andrew okay. Shepard, news editor, um, yeah, there was a very good team of people on the on the Sunday press. I mean, it was it was a huge seller that and time. And great I mean, fun to work in the Irish press. Great fun, yeah, great I camaraderie. I think of all the papers, it was the one everybody enjoyed. Maybe it's because you were situated beside Mulligan's pub. Yeah. That yeah. might have had some impact. Yeah, in the evening time, uh, especially <laughs> in a Friday evening, everybody would just The great uh, Con Hoolahan and all the gang, you know? Yeah, and it was a privilege to work with people like Con Hoolan, who was a gentleman. I mean, I was privileged to know Con and uh, often, often spoke to him and saw him standing in uh, the hill or in the Nally stand in, uh, during matches with no notebook ever. But uh, I remember meeting him in Mulligan's pub one evening after an All-Ireland, I think it was between Tipperary and Antrim in 1989. And he said to me, I'm exhausted. And I said, why? And he said, well, I, have to I have to retain it all in my head. I don't take any notes. And then, now he, I'm, then he'd get up at six o'clock in the morning. Get up at six o'clock in the morning. And, and he'd write it. this most beautiful prose 
a sentence per page, wasn't that it? Send in hand, a, a long paragraph hand. on each page. Yeah, and, bring and it then in. Hand, it, hand it in, a sheaves of paper, and somebody would put it and together. And only one or two typesetters could actually read his writing. And he'd go in, bring it in, out. This was an, a daily morning pub as the white horse crossed, uh, crossed the way. He'd go across to the white horse, have his brandy and milk, and the typesetter would set it. And when he'd have done, the copy boy would bring it across the road to Con, Into sitting the at the bar, and Con would go through it meticulously with the pen and Wasn't correct everything down to the last comma. Wasn't it Con Houlihan who said, a man who can misplace an apostrophe is capable of anything? You're exactly right, Mark. <laughs> That's what he did say. A, a, a lesson many in the legal profession have, have yet to learn. Oh, yeah, and if, yeah. He, if, if it came out and he'd missed one, he would be frantic over it right. and making a small error. He was meticulous. Mm. Great uh, grammarian, great writer, I mean. Mm. Um, I'm sorry, I mean, one of the great regrets I have is I used to go in and uh, when I was on the Irish, I was on the Irish Press News Editor for a while and I'd pick up all the pages that Con would have had that were mm. left thrown around from the evening press column and I said if I kept one of them yeah. I'd love to have it mm. and I, but all of them I put in the bin and they were and those columns used to sell the evening press, didn't oh, they? Yeah. Really? I mean, obviously the wonderful journalism as well that went along with Con Hoolan, but it was such a oh, huge seller. Okay, Mark, I'm hogging this talk about journalism. Well, we, well, we better go on to the, the story du jour. Yeah. So, Tim, you, you're here primarily to talk to us about the Kenny Report. And you've written this book, Housing Missed Opportunity, which I had the good fortune to buy a copy of at the launch. And I've read it. And it's for, for a subject that people might think of as very dry. It is a very readable book. And dare I say, the introduction by Lorcan Sarah alone shows what an important topic it is and really how, in a way, it's quite an exciting topic. Could you tell us, first of all, what interested you in the Kenny Report? How, how did you decide to devote a book to this? It was unusual, I mean, that I'd come across this, but I'd seen um, letters mainly in the Irish Times now and again referring to this Kenny Report and why it hadn't been implemented. All the time when I was covering politics in the Dáilid, all the time came up um, in Labour motions and bills, and notably from the Labour Party, proposed bills to implement the Kenya Report. But I'd never seen the Kenya Report. In fact, as Larkin Sword points out, introduction is almost impossible to get a copy. And even it's the, not available online, no. No, I think there might be a PDF copy available right. online. I mean, the, the copy I have is a photocopy of a photocopy somebody gave me from the RT library, I think. Right. So it's not most people that talk about it have never read it or never even seen it. Sure. And how did the Kenny Report come about? The Kenny Report came about in, because, a bit like today, and a bit like many times in the late 1960s, uh, house prices started to shoot up. Hmm. And it's particularly the price of land, development land. And the developers were already moving in, buying land, hoarding it, and flipping it and selling, selling it on. And it was causing huge rise in the house of prices. So the minister at the time was Bobby Malloy, and he'd tried to look at all sorts of options. And, and th I mean, this is the issue where you have a piece of agricultural land that's selling. I mean, these days it might sell for something like ten to 12,000 an acre or something like that. As soon as the planner rezones it, suddenly it becomes uh, uh, maybe six or eight sites, each of which might sell for 40, 50, 60, 70,000 per site. And so suddenly your your acre worth 10,000 is worth several multiples of that. And that all goes into the, the hands of the landowner, who in many cases would be a land banker, somebody who's bought a load of land in the expectation that one day it will be rezoned. Isn't that the, that's, that's the issue? The, that's the issue. And so and there's, a, there's this massive windfall that, 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 that falls into the, into the hands of the property owner that might otherwise go to the state in some form well, or another. In other words, there's no community benefit. Yeah. It's, it's all into the, into the pockets of the few. Mm -hmm. And uh, what Judge Kenny was trying to do was to try to minimise that and that the land, because you have a number of factors, you have, you have labour costs, you have, um, you have the materials, you have the levies, 
and you can kind of cost them uh, uh, reasonably easily. But the one, the loose factor out there that you can't control is the price of land because there's no control over it. It's, it's market forces. And the fact that market forces should be allowed free for something that's as important as housing, I think is wrong. I think there should be some regulation that controls the price of land as a major factor if you're going to try and keep the price of houses down. And any of the, you know, the, in, in the book, you'll see the planning regulator, you'll mm. see the ESRI, yep. you'll see the NEST people, all of them in the mm. reports say the one loose cannon out there that needs mm. to be controlled to get house prices down is the price of I, land. And this is something that Bobby Malloy was conscious of in 1973 when he commissions the Kenny report and Judge John Kenny took that ball and wrote the Kenny report. Can you just tell us a little bit about John Kenny? Because he's a quite an interesting character, isn't he's he? He's an interesting character, yeah. He was um, he lectured in, in law as well and part-time in UCD. Very individual mind. Um, he would be regarded as, um, looking back, as probably one of the brightest mm. high court uh, judges when he became a judge. And but, but his own father was a building contractor. His only father was a building contractor yeah. who, went, who went bust, I think, at least once, if not more. So he would have been quite familiar with the ups and downs of the property industry. And his father had helped build a lot of what's now um, Mount Merion around that, that area of Dublin. So he was very familiar with building and he had an interest in it. And I think that's why um, I had commented on it. If, and that's why I think Bobby Malai chose him to chair the report. Yeah. So can I just come in there, Tim? So look, the period, the late 1960s, this was kind of post-Lamas. Jack Lynch took over in 66 and there had been a period of growth in Ireland. Isn't that it? That's right. And I mean, people who remember more recent housing crisis, obviously currently one, they're set against periods of growth, economic growth. Ireland is wealthier. Land prices go up. So Bobby Malloy put together this this committee and it was chaired obviously by John Kenny, who you've spoken about. So what was their remit? What, what were they set out to do? What did Bobby Malloy say? Come up with a set of proposals. Proposals that would help to uh, limit the price of land and give some community benefit and also to suggest any changes in legislation that might be necessary to do this. And that's what... And, and they, a, stuck, they stuck to the to the brief. a strong push for development of suburbia, wasn't there? Well, the there periphery was, of towns, the periphery of city, cities, yeah. agricultural land a little premium of maybe 25% on top of that, wasn't yeah, that people it? People make a lot of hay sometimes about, about the 25%. I mean, what, what Kenny said in the report was, when you're taking the land or buying the land from the farmer um, at agricultural value, plus you give them, he said, 25%, give or take. He wasn't hung up on the 25%. He wouldn't have objected to 30% or whatever. This was to account, account for um, disturbance that the farmer had to go buy another field or to buy another farm or whatever. So he taught 25%. And I'm sure if, in cases where it might be a major disturbance, he wouldn't have had a problem with giving uh, um, some more. That was um, a very kind of flexible figure. But people tend to hang on to it as, oh, that was too little or whatever. He just put it out there as a kind of a figure that he thought was struck a balance between the I interest mean, there of... Are, there are sort of compensation principles anyway in, com in compulsory purchase. So, yeah. I mean, you know, the, taking one person's field can cause a lot more disruption yeah. than taking another person's field simply depending on how it relates to the house, how it relates to the other, to the rest of the farm. So, I mean, yeah, you, it, you know, it, 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 it's, it's not an insurmountable no. uh, obstacle, the 25%, is it? No, if somebody has a big uh, dairy farm and put a lot of money investment into it and they're milking a lot of cows and suddenly you split the land, take half it off. The farmer's left there, I mean, he has to buy more land. That's a different situation to someone who's just a few cattle walking around sure. or whatever and, and the land isn't so valuable in, in another part of the country. So there obviously would, it would have had to be flexible. I don't, the 25% was not set in stone. Okay. Mm. So it was published in 1973. 
Okay, and what was the reception? How was how was it received? Well, just when it was published, the, the government changed actually very shortly after. I think within weeks. And so we, Liam we Cosgrave got, came in. We Fine Gael Labour, yeah. And we got a Labour minister, Jimmy Tully, better known maybe for other things later Tully on. Tully Mander. Tully Mander. But and initially, of course, they they looked at it and um, a, a, a cabinet meeting agreed to adopt it. So the the government did accept it in principle. People forget that. But but the point we should make here is that in the report there was a minority report. And most unusually, there was a majority and minority report. And the minority report, most unusually, I don't think it's happened since, was written by the two several servants from the commissioning department, which was the, now the Department of uh, the Housing, then Department of Environment. And those two civil servants opposed it. Basically, and there were a number of arguments, but the main argument was that it was unconstitutional. And the legal officer in the, in the department at that time was utterly opposed to it. And the civil servants, and I've spoken to a few civil servants that were around at the time, and they said among the civil servants, there was no will to implement it for various reasons, but one was the unconstitutional. And they lobbied hard and with the government and told them this is... So, of course, the minister normally takes the advice of civil servants. So it was kind of put at the long finger. The other thing but, is... But there, I mean, there was political support across the board for this, wasn't there? Was, I mean, there was Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and Labour support, and they were basically the only yeah, three parties were, of, of yeah, significance were, yeah, at the time. Yeah, Fine Gael, I mean, who would expect it to be against it, I mm. mean, if they were representing large farmers or whatever. Mm. But in, in principle, they accepted it in the beginning, and a number of ministers like Peter Barry took an interest in it later on. And then, you know, kind of, I would call, you know, ministers with a kind of a strong social commitment, mm. especially for housing, which is different to... to developing for maybe some commercial or something else. Mm. And um, the, the other thing that's forgotten is people who lived like myself for the, through the 1970s, the, the Northern Trouble started. Mm. And I mean, a lot of it dominated, if you can remember the time, sure. and the, the, with the, Mon- the Dublin Monaghan bombings we had. Then we had an oil crisis and house prices came down and the whole panic mm. about houses took a back step. And then the and hunger strikes and the, the strikes. recession of the 80s and 80s, all of that. And the and whole thing went yeah. down. I mean, I suppose sometimes you find that, uh, that, that governments take the view you, you don't let, let a good crisis go to waste. waste. And maybe the, the 80s might have been an opportunity to do that. But, uh, yeah. but what, what struck me in the book was that one of the big promoters of the Kenning Report was Rory Quinn, who became Minister for Finance in the mid-90s. And he never pushed to implement it when he was actually in government, no. did he? And I never, I mean, I tried to, to find out and reason from him, but um, I didn't really get clear. One. The only one I got was that it just got pushed down the agenda and other things constantly uh, were more important. And any time this was raised um, in the Dole, I've given some Dole quotes from in the book, uh, the, the, the old hairy chestnut of the Constitution came up. It went to the Attorney General and I've quoted some of the, any attorney general, attorney generals always, I think, err on the side of caution. I think that's the, the way they go. And uh, most of them would have said the answer is this is a matter that should be tested in the court. We can't know what it is or isn't. And of course, the logical thing is they should have tested in the court, the same as we have. Well, but it's actually in the report, isn't it, that because of the radical nature of the uh, recommendations, that there should be an Article 26 reference almost sort of built into the... the yeah, Judge Kenny recommended report. that yeah, it be yeah. the test of court. And, and this was, the Law Society uh, used this as an objection, saying, well, if the judge thinks it isn't, isn't sure about it and it should be tested in the, sure. in the court, well, then there must be a major question mark about this. And the thing kept getting kicked Such from, a shame that it wasn't referred. I mean, that would have been, it as would you have say, been, Supreme yeah. Court could have pronounced upon it and then there was no more obstacles. Yeah. I, I'm curious what Mark says, and he, he refers to the fact that Rory Quinn came in as Minister for Finance in about 94, 95, 
was the report still relevant then? We're talking like 25 years on at this stage. Oh, it was, did, a, did, was it still a fresh, you know, piece of thinking that could be applied to the Ireland think, of that day? Yeah, I think the principles were still alive and I think the principles are still alive today. Okay. I mean, I quoted there the opening paragraph in the book is about the NIST report in, in 2021, uh, which is, of course, chaired by the, the Secretary General of the Taoiseach's Department, Martin Fraser, who was there then. And the, and the conclusion is, the Kenny report is still relevant today. And I think the other, the other thing to say is that in the meantime, we had a very long and very expensive tribunal into planning issues, which arose largely from the fact that people appeared to be prepared to take quite significant lengths to arrange for certain lands to be rezoned, to, to put it mildly. So, I mean, clearly the issue of rezoning lands and the, the windfall that went to developers or, or land bankers yeah. um, was, uh, was a live issue in the 1990s. And I mean, certainly I remember the time of all of the, what they call them, part four rezonings, when, the, when each local authority would, would effectively override their own planner's recommendations to rezone land. I mean, it, it was a, it was a very four. live issue in the... Oh, yeah, um, right through in, up, in, yeah. up into the 90s. And uh, even today, I mean, one of the things that uh, Judge Kenny opposed was, and he looked uh, in the report at all sorts of taxes and putting tax on development land, uh, vacant land like we have now, all that. And him sitting around today, if he was, he would oppose still the sort of proposal we have now for vacant land and land that's not developed because we now have the ludicrous situation to have to put off the um, the zone land tax because f- many people like farmers have land zoned that they don't know is zoned and they want to de-zone it. So that, that legislation has been halted. So all that would have been obliterated and wouldn't have arisen if Kenny had been accepted. Will you explain the concept of betterment? This was this was crucial to, to Judge Kenny's thinking, wasn't it? It was, yeah. There's a lot of kind of confusion over what it means, but it, it was largely mean, and it, there was a, thing, a report called the Utwat Report, which was, which came from Britain, which Kenny was very much um, concerned with, about looking at uh, what betterment means. It probably in simple terms means the increase in value that comes to land when you provide the facilities, the sewerage and the water. And that the increased value that gives to the land, which Kenny would argue should really go to the community because the community are paying for the, for the utilities. So the betterment value should really go in some way to the community. I think that's or at least a good portion of it. And that's what he was trying to get across, as is specified in Article 43 too. And, and the, the other thing that comes through in the book is that, which I hadn't realised about the Kenny report before, is that it's not such a market-driven concept. I mean, it's not a question of somebody buying land and then basically applying to the local authority to buy it and give them their 25%. The idea is that the government, through its own planning, identifies areas of zoning, yeah. buys the land itself, and then rezones it, and then either sells it onto a developer or, or develops it itself. And so you wouldn't have the same problem that you've had in certain parts, certainly of Dublin, where these huge housing estates would be built that didn't have schools, didn't have public transport yeah. links and all that kind of and, thing, and, and, because and the whole thing would have been much more centrally planned. And, and were still built yeah. on floodplains, as we've seen in, last, sure. in the past week. I mean, the, the, it would have been state-driven. The state would have decided where we want to build the houses, not the developer applying because he had got a field. Did uh, Judge Kenny talk about local authority housing at all? I, I remember just seeing a statistic, I think between 1948 and 1970, there was something like sixty to 70,000 local authority houses built all over the country, which is a huge, huge amount of oh, yeah, property. Yeah. And we see all the estates around 
Uh, I'm reminded of the line from mm. Brendan Behan when he had to move from the north inner city to Crumlin. He said, there's no such thing as suburbia, it's only Siberia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that was his famous line. But there was there was a huge amount of building of local authority houses. Um, was that in Judge Kenny's thinking no. that the state should build them themselves? Yes, it was about um, getting land. He didn't talk about the, the process of building at all. No, it, I think one of, the, one of the arguments used against Kenny, he didn't go into detail on the, on social housing or whatever. Um, but, I mean, there's no reason why when the land is acquired, the state couldn't have built on it, the local authority couldn't have built on it themselves. I mean, once the land was acquired for, um, this was where it was going to be built, Judge Kenny didn't say who should build it. I mean, it could be private developers, it could be the state, anybody could build on it. I mean, he didn't specifically, I mean, I suppose he, he couldn't go into everything. He didn't go into great detail on social housing in it. Another thing that struck me, an interesting tidbit in your book, is that it wasn't just the British uh, government report, the, it was the, uh, the tri- report. He was also influenced by a papal encyclical called oh, yeah. Pachim Terrace, which was uh, released by, or I don't know if releases the word, by Pope John the Twenty Third just before his death. And that was a, a, a very influential part of the Kenny report. Yeah, because arising from that was the case that Judge Kenny had sat on, which was the case known the Ryan report case. Where very, very briefly, a housewife brought a case when the fluoridization of water came in that her children shouldn't have to use this water because it'd be bad for their teeth. They were entitled to have the water as it is, and this and she brought a case against Dublin Corporation as it was at the time. And um, we had all sorts of heavyweight barristers uh, arguing both sides. And um, the judge in the case was Judge Kenny. And in his judgment, he rejected almost all of her arguments, except he came up with the one critical line that there are unenumerated rights in the Constitution. In other words, specific rights that are not mentioned. And this opened up a whole can of worms. What Absolutely huge statement in the the history of Irish law. And of course, it was appealed to the Supreme Court. And lo and behold, the Supreme Court came down in favour of Kenny. And the judge that gave the judgment there was... Carulo Dalig, who was later President of Ireland. Okay, so so Tim, you're saying to me now, having gone through this and, and having studied, and the, and the book is fantastic, it really is fantastic, and it is so relevant today. Your view is, and you're, I think you strong, strongly advocate, that the Kenny Report remains evergreen, and it is still relevant today. So, I mean, can we send Dara O'Brien or whoever is the future housing minister to go into RTE, into those dusty archives and see if they can root out a copy of this and have a look? You think that is to society's advantage? I think it's still relevant, not so much maybe to agricultural land anymore because we're dealing maybe uh, much now with uh, brownfield sites and stuff. But I can see no reason why the principles of Kenya can't be applied to brownfield sites or to any other site and greenfield sites. I mean, there's no reason why the local authority couldn't still have the same powers as Judge Kenny proposed. And we don't need a referendum in the Constitution to bring it in, which is what he ensured. I think, we're unfortunately, we're getting to the stage where we need to ask the, 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 the key question we ask of all our guests. Which, would you want to? Absolutely. Tim, I don't know whether you're familiar with our feature here where we ask you to recommend a book to our listeners. It can have a legal theme, but we can go beyond the legal theme as well. Anything occur to you at all? Well, let me mention Rowan McCormack's book, if you want a legal book, I mean, on the Supreme Court, which is an excellent piece of of writing, I mean, that that was done now. The the editor of the Irish Times, still relevant, still recommended to anybody who has an interest in in law or whatever. Um, For fiction and for what I liked to relax and get away from everything, a big heroine writer of mine is Claire Keegan, who's best known for writing Foster, which was the book behind Colleen Kuhn. The God of Small Things, I think, was that? She's a book out called Some Small Things Like These. Okay, sorry. And she's a new one out called too late in the day. Sorry, I went to bring with me a very short book, but very well written. 
Um, I recommend her for great style of writing, very precise. And uh, she was nominated for the Booker Prize last year. Yeah. Was shortlisted and yeah. you know was a favourite, but didn't didn't win in the yeah, end. Okay, those two recent books by Claire Keegan and Tim. We had a little bit of chit chat before we 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 were still put on the the recording device and started talking here, and we were reminiscing about your book on the great PJ Mara, legendary Irish character. And you were saying that you might develop something down the line in terms of political spin, etc. Yeah, like you're you're the master. You've been involved over the years with all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. So what's on the horizon for you going forward? Well, I'm looking at uh, Peter Reason, PJ. Mara was probably the original, what we call Spin Doctor, uh, who was a press officer for PJ Mara. And some years ago, I went back to my old uh, Mara UCC and I did um, an MCOM on, and the thesis was on Spin Doctoring. And I have a thesis there and I'd like to turn it into a book on the kind of the Spin Doctoring and how it works. And again, the relevance today and pointing out examples of it. And maybe it's an uh, a synopsis again of the PJ Mara book and how, how he started it all. We, we never get tired hearing and, about PJ Mara. And it should be mentioned that you have started your own company, Grand Canal Media, which is specifically to assist people who want to write books of a, should, should we say, a medium-run right. nature that mightn't necessarily go into the front of the the big bookshops, but nonetheless would have a, a reasonable readership. Yeah, lots of people will write books where they mm. might have a few hundred, few thousand sales mm. published, don't want to know them. It's a costly exercise, wherever. I'm hoping that, you know, with, with uh, digital printing and all the rest of it, we can make it available through Grand Canal Media um, at a reasonable price with a few bob for the writer. That's yeah, absolutely Grand, fantastic. GrandCanalMedia.ie and again, if I can recommend to any uh, listeners uh, get a copy of Housing a Missed Opportunity which will be available online anyway from Grand Canal Media and it really is for a very dry subject a very good read thanks very much The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week so that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Tim Ryan, for coming in and talking to us about the missed opportunity that was the Kenny Report. But Mark, it's never too late. He seems to think it's it's very much an evergreen document that's very relevant to the housing problems and crisis of today. Yeah, well, I think what's, what's interesting about it is that almost all development in Ireland seems to have been market-led in the sense that it's been developers have identified where they want to develop and they simply apply for zoning or they apply for, for planning permission. And whereas the, the nature of the Kenning Report is not just the issue of the 25% surcharge on top of the agricultural value, yes. it's much more an issue of the state effectively identifying where they want to develop, buying the land and then identifying how it's going to be developed. Yeah. Um, and I think so, that and this is this is a very important book. Yeah. And Tim himself, big shout out to Tim, mm. setting up that publishing company where yeah. he's going to give people like himself an opportunity yeah. to publish books that are so in the public interest mm. but mightn't get another commercial publisher. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love it. Well done to him. Okay, before we go, can we say a big thank you also to our producer, Conal O'Morine, for his great assistance in putting this podcast together and to the great Lee Brennan of the Dublin South Podcast Studios for their wonderful work in recording this show. So that's all from us. So from me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.